0: What do you mean, Sabra? You're not going. Why, a oh, venable should ever marry such a man.
1: Buffalo hunter. Quite right. Oh, Ed. A quart of whiskey a day. Living in that dreadful Cimarron country. Uh,
0: what is Cimarron? Very Captain Hewitt. Means wild, unruly. Yancey's idea of a name for the boy. Sid. You don't like anything Yancey does. You never have. And that newspaper oh, his, Wichita Wigwam editorials about Indians' rights. You might think Yancey was an Indian himself. Well, who knows? Some half-breeds are no dog. Oh, don't you dare say that. I heard he killed a man.
1: Oh, I
0: won't listen to you any longer. I don't care about Yancey's task. I married him because I loved him, and I'm going with him. Oh, I am afraid of Welcome back to Awards Don't Matter, the podcast that is all about the best picture winner of every year uh, as we go through from the beginning all the way from Wings to uh, the end of time. Uh, and we're hitting the fourth Best Picture winner here now. Uh, my name is Andrew Pierce and I'm joined by my uh, reluctant guest uh, host, <laughs> or I, I, the person who I badged into doing this thing in the first place, and maybe after the, more films like um, The Broadway Melody and Cimarron, um, he may be, you know, rejecting this notion going forward, but we'll see. So thanks again, uh, Dave, for agreeing to do this show.
1: (laughs) Well, you're welcome. It is nice to uh, get some of the the shit out of the way at the beginning, I guess, you know, it's, you know, nowhere to go, but up from the Broadway melody or so I thought, Uh, but (laughs) here we are, here we are at Cimarron. (laughs) Right. So
0: Cimarron. Yeah. Um, Directed by Wesley Ruggles, who was nominated for best director. Uh, it won Best Picture. It was the first Best Picture winner to actually win more than one uh, Academy Award. Um, it also won uh, the Best Adaptation, which it came from a novel by Edna Ferber, who later went on to write the book Giant, And uh, yeah, which was pretty great, uh, and also won Best Art Direction as well. Now, usually with these episodes and the discussions and stuff like that, we ask the question at the end after we've discussed the film – whether it's important and it matters now anymore or not. But I have a feeling that uh, we're going to disagree on this one. (laughs) So I'm going to ask the question to you now. Dave, does Simuron matter in 2020 at all anymore? No,
1: absolutely not. No, no. I I can't wait to hear your take on this because I know it's different than mine, Uh, but like... I mean we'll talk about it of course in detail, but I don't know, after the first ten minutes of this movie, nothing matters. <laughs> none of none of it matters. So <laughs>
0: Right. Well look, I wrote the So most convince notes me I've why, is, why does why matter? Yeah, it does. It does. <laughs> I think it does. And you know why? Because I think that I think as we go through the films, and I've mentioned this a couple of times, and I sound like a broken record when I do, but for a lot of the best picture winners, they catalog a section of American history or history in general, um, you know, Gone with the Wind, for example. And uh, as we go on, Forrest Gump, I keep on bringing up Forrest Gump, but that's the one that always comes to mind is like a, the catalog of the history of America and stuff like that. And Cimarron is that film for the 1930s. You know, it's set during the Oklahoma land rush of 1889, which I had no idea existed and goes all the way to the early 1900s. And, I just found this a really, really fascinating, enjoyable, uh, albeit exceptionally racist film. Um, And I do think it's very important because it, I just found.
1: What is there to enjoy here after the rush? I will say that (laughs) that opening sequence is absolutely fantastic. Like I I think it's beautifully shot and it is exciting and wonderful and it has twists and turns. It's actually like a really wonderful short film. Uh, i think I think it's great uh but then after that uh if you would like uh if you don't want to take medication to sleep and you would rather watch a movie, you have a movie here like that is that is a really good way to go. But I interrupted you. Please continue.
0: No, 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 no. Look, let's start off with that opening because it is a really fascinating and exhilarating opening. Um, 28 cameramen were used to shoot it. Numerous of camera assistants and photographers as well uh, were used to capture the 5,000 costume extras, covered wagons, buckboards, surreys, and bicyclists. Um, and there's a guy on a penny farthing uh, riding along alongside uh, rickety, rollicking... Um, wagons and all this kind of stuff it is a really 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 thrilling exciting sequence of people just rushing to steal land from native americans and that in itself is uh i found it really eye-opening in in a fascinating way and in the same way that wings was and yes okay Cimarron doesn't carry up that kind of exhilaration as it goes forward, uh, but I was actually really riveted throughout this whole entire film. I I really enjoyed watching it, and I found it a genuinely fascinating slice of American film history. Uh, I found the um, the the once uh, silent film and stage actor Richard Dix as as the. Brilliantly named Yancey Cravat. I love that name to bits. Um, I found him. It's a good name. It's a great good name. name. Uh, I found that. And his wife is uh, Sabra Cravat, played by Irene Dunn. And both of them were nominated for Best Actor and Actress Awards. Um, they didn't win, but nonetheless, I, I found his good. performance just <laughs> wonderful and a real treat to watch. And just a completely. And I understand it's a style of acting that a lot of people would be pushed off by, but is a completely engaging, alluring, mesmerizing, out there kind of performance. Uh, I, I thought it was absolutely wonderful, uh, a real joy to watch. Um, and certainly he is the American hero through and through. He is a genuine, you know, no dirt on me kind of guy. He, uh, Elevates, He moves out to this Oklahoma town to elevate it up and lift it out of the dirt and all this kind of stuff and make it a more positive town. And he does that by clearing out the the bad people and instilling a good amount of religion and and, and starting a newspaper and all of these positive American values. And he embodies that so earnestly and positively that I found it kind of infectious. Um, But I take it you didn't. So it's fine. It's I mean, fine. I think <laughs> I, I,
1: I, think he's a very good-looking guy. Um, he is. That's he's about got it. a great chin. Um, he does. He does. I mean, he looks like he looks the part of a Western hero, and that is important. But I really think this movie follows the wrong people. Um, I'm, I would have been much more interested in the story of Dixie Lee, um, you know, the woman who kind of bamboozles him out of, out of his land in the very beginning and that's kind of i thought there would be a lot more crossover with her and there is some crossover later in the movie but it's really about Yancey and his you know as you said uh improving you know the world around him which is nice but like i i would heartily disagree with a description of anything about this movie including his performance as engaging because i was not (laughs) engaged through, I would say, 90% of this movie. This movie is two hours long, and there's a good 20 minutes for me. Um, it just, like, I think in a lot of ways, that opening sequence, which we've talked about, set the bar way too high. Like, you know, I would heard bad things about this movie. It's widely known as one of the worst uh, Academy Award-winning pictures ever made. So it's like, you know, it's hard not to have a bad attitude when you hear that. Um, and then the first 10 minutes happens, and I'm like... People are crazy. This is great. This is fantastic. And then it comes after that land grab. Boy, does this come to a screeching halt. Like, I I didn't find him particularly engaging or charming. Um, I didn't really uh, care about his relationship with Sabra. Uh, that didn't work for me. Um, the only things that worked for me were things that were kind of going on in the background, like the stuff with Dixie Lee. And I think a lot of that is because... Okay, there's two reasons. One is because when you have background characters, when you have side characters, there's mystery to them and you're like, I want to know more about them. So it's, it's a little more interesting to be interesting. Um, and the other part is seeing this with 2020 eyes. So given the fact that, you know, she's kind of a dark, mysterious woman and he's this like, you know, standard romantic hero. Um, I was kind of waiting for something to happen there, but this movie is very, even though it's horribly racist, is also like weirdly like very earnest and very nice. Uh, you know, as long as you're focusing on white characters, it's very nice. Uh, you do have like what are the characters you're rooting for, um, supposed to be rooting for his wife sabra uh who was like very like almost violently anti-native american through most of the movie uh so that that definitely rubbed me the wrong way where i was like i'm supposed to care about this lady nah nah she sucks man i'm not i'm not you know and it's just like and the movie does jump around a lot as far as history goes as far as time goes so i think that um that disengaged me where i was like wait where are we when are we now like why do I like, oh yeah, he doesn't, he did another nice thing. Like, I, and that's the other thing is he such a romantic hero that like, I don't know, I, I want a hero with a few more mistakes, you know, where it's like, it's an effort. It just seems like everything is like, he always does the right thing and he always does the nice thing. And I'm like, that's not a terribly interesting hero to me. Like, what where's the, where's the conflict? Where's the, where's the struggle? And I wanted a little bit more of that.
0: But as the poster says, he is terrific as all creation. Like, he is. Ugh. He is. He is a title. Ugh. He is he's a man that stands above everybody else. And he is an icon. And I find the complexities of this film really fascinating. Because so often in early films, there is good and bad. And that's it. And yet, Sabra is a very much, like, from my Australian perspective, very much a, a the Republican mold of person you know she is a very much a, a staunch republican and yet Yancey eventually as a governor um, becomes a progressive candidate and he is a very much like we need to instill rights for native americans and while he is still a person who benefits and profits and um actively engages in the removal and the sealing off the land of the native americans uh he is somebody who still earnestly wants to fight for their rights. And that kind of moral complexity, I find quite interesting, even though the film doesn't entirely engage with it. They simply present him as somebody who wants to vocally stand for the rights of people who are, you know, having their land quite literally stolen and bought away from them. Um, I find I found that really interesting from a modern perspective, looking back and seeing how a an era where, you know, Birth of a Nation existed, uh, how they would present this kind of narrative on film. And I think they do it in a really interesting way. Um, But I do want to come back to Dixie for a moment, because I also find her really interesting, too. Um, She's played by Estelle Taylor. And I think that that character is a really curious kind of creation because... We don't really know much about her all that much. And the first time that we meet her is in a really kind of a... It's at the end of that stampede. And, you know, Yancey is so eager on this one slot of land. And she's racing alongside him, eager to get there too. And he, being the gentleman that he is, helps her out when she, I assume, deliberately crashes her horse into a ditch. And then gets him to shoot it because it's got a broken leg. And she's like, Oh fuck you. I got your land, you know? And I'm like, Jesus, are we supposed to like this person or not? And then as we go along, and this is maybe what I responded to the most about this film. As we go along and we see her being ostracized from a society and from the town that she lives in for no apparent reason. And I think I texted you saying, is she a sex worker? Um, because we don't, you know, we're never sure. And yet, you know, and then there's an allusion to the fact that she might have, you know, for for some reason, Yancey just fucks off for five years. And, you know, the discussion around the town is like, ah, he's just gone off with Dixie, you know, and they're, they're off going doing stuff with Dixie and stuff. And then as soon as he returns, she's pulled up on some kind of indecency charges and being essentially prosecuted by Sabra for some reason and he then rushes to her defense, which is a scene I love. I thought that was an absolutely brilliant scene. And it's it's not like a top-tier courtroom scene or anything, but he sells that moment. And look, maybe I'm gullible, maybe I'm, you know, easily hoodwinked, but I was sold in that moment. I'm like, yeah, you're a good man, Yancey. I'm going to overlook all of your terrible elements because you're a good man because you stood <laughs> up for Dixie.
1: I like that moment. Well, <laughs> Here's the thing. Um, There's some of what you said that makes sense. Uh, There's (laughs) some that I agree with. So this is a movie that has three or four moments that really work. And the courtroom scene is one of them. But I guarantee you, Andrew, if if you watched a movie made like this, you take out the racism element. Obviously, that would not fly right now. But just the structure of the movie. If this came out in 2019, you would tear it apart. Because it doesn't, like, the process of the movie doesn't make any sense. It jumps around. There's no, there's no reason shown why he would do this or why, you know, she is being prosecuted by Sabra other than the fact that like, oh, we don't want to hire any more actors and these are the main characters. So we're going to have her do it. None of that makes any sense. The scene itself works. It absolutely does. The, the stampede, uh, works. That works. The death scene for Yancey works, but they work in a vacuum. Um, and everything in between is just kind of like, you're just kind of wavering back and forth. And we haven't even talked about the one black character in this movie, which is like maybe one of the most wildly offensive things I've seen on a uh, in a movie ever. Um, so it's like, it's... it's... We've had enough of this,
0: Wichita. We're going out to a brand new two-fisted rip-snorting country full of Indians, rattlesnakes, gun-toters, and desperadoes. Whoop
1: I'm sorry! You miserable brat! <laughs> you boom boy! Oh, my take me if you don't kill me.
0: Please take me, Moses. You ain't going to know if you're You want to take a bath. That's what you want to do.
1: It's, it's hard for me to like leave that behind, you know, uh, but even just as a movie, like the fact that this this one uh, for best screenplay is insane to me. Like it just like, because it's a fucking mess, but I will give it this uh, because I have made good on my promise to try and watch uh, as many of the Oscar nominated films as I can in terms of best picture. And this was not the worst nominee uh because there is a movie called Skippy uh oh, yeah. which, which is which based, one based director? Which, holy shit what a piece of garbage that was <laughs> um it's you know it's based on a comic strip it's very like little rascals esque uh and it's bad i mean it's hard to watch um so i watch that i watch. uh Let's see, what else did I watch? I watched the front page, uh, which was very good. I would have, I would have much rather that that won the Oscar. Um, and then I watched most of a movie called East Lynn, uh, which like, you can only watch the whole thing at like, there's a certain museum that has the actual print. There's a version on YouTube that has everything but the last 20 minutes. Uh, so it's a little frustrating to not see how it all ends, but it's a solid, like, it's a solid kind of period piece-esque uh movie. Um but like all of those except Skippy, I didn't I I didn't find a copy of Trader Horn which looks just as racist if not more so uh than Cimarron, so I'm kinda glad that yeah. it wasn't readily available. Yeah. It's like, and I, uh, I
0: don't. yeah, and I'll read you I'll read you just a short moment of the of the production of Trader Horn because I have heard that it is a truly appalling film. Um, Many accidents and delays occurred during filming in Africa. Many of the crew, including the director W.S. Van Dyke, contracted malaria. An African crewman fell into a river and was eaten by a crocodile, while another was killed by a charging rhinoceros. The rhinoceros was captured on film, and the scene was used in the final print. Swarms of many insects, including locusts and cc flies, were common, and cast and crew were perpetually bitten or stung. Yeah.
1: So well, that, i mean, glad even that film the, didn't even, win Best Picture. <laughs> right. But, I mean, even the movie, like, it's, you know, uh, it's like this adventurer who goes to Africa and finds, you know, this white blonde who was, like, the daughter of a, mission, uh, a missing missionary. You know, it's very, you know, oh, go, you know, get her back from the savages type film. And I'm like, I don't, I don't need that in my life. Like, I just... Like, I'm good. Like the closest I'll get to that is something like King Kong, because uh, I think there's some good stuff in there, but there's obviously some racial parallels he can make. Uh, but Trader Horn, like it takes out the mystery of something as subtle as King Kong. Uh so <laughs> I'm just like, uh I don't I don't need that in my life. So Cimarron, I don't know, I um other than that opening sequence I struggle, like, I'm betting in a month, if you ask me about this, I'm going to struggle to remember much about it other than the obvious racism. That's that's the thing that's going to stick in my mind. Some
0: inside baseball for people who are listening to this. Uh, This episode is scheduled to come out in July. We're recording this in May just to kind of get a few in the can. And, yeah, I'm hoping that when I remind Dave that we recorded this episode, that I'm going to get a run of expletives in text or something. Oh, that can film.
1: <laughs> <laughs> You're not I'm wrong. A I but I, about that I, will... I was
0: done with it, <laughs>
1: <laughs> but I will say that um, this is not the worst uh, that we've seen so far. Um, I would, I would certainly watch this over the Broadway melody. It does have at least one or two sequences that like, you know cinematically are memorable and pretty fantastic and amazing especially amazing for the time um given the fact that this was you know probably filmed in 1929 or 1930 the fact that they pulled that off is truly impressive um you know it's it's something that i think with if you were to do it without cgi now it would be a struggle to do like it's there's so much going on in that sequence like I was and I'm watching it on my iPad you know because you know a little more behind uh you know behind the scenes I'm technically in the you know in the process of moving across the country so I don't have my tv I don't have my couch so it's like you know me and a a bed and and an iPad so I was watching it on this relatively small screen big for an iPad but small for a movie um and I was wowed by this I was like oh my god like I don't I can't imagine doing this in the 1920s. (laughs) Like, this must have been so dangerous to do. Like, it's up there as far as, like, as far as, like, a horse charge. Like, it's up there with things like Lawrence of Arabia. You know, like, it is really, it's impressive. Like, I I was genuinely floored by it.
0: Well, I want to talk about that in a moment, but I want to bring up. You know, as you were saying earlier about how if this film was made in in 2020, yeah, I would probably rip it to shreds. But I think that that's the important thing about watching films from, you know, eras almost 100 years ago, uh, where we have to look at it at the perspective of what was made then. And yeah, arguably there are a lot better films made at this period of time that weren't nominated for best picture. I mean, we mentioned Nosferatu in previous episode that was not nominated for best picture. There were countless great films from this era that didn't get nominated, but this is what we're looking at specifically. And I think that looking at it, trying to put as, as close as I can to 1930s goggles on this kind of film, I, can see that people who lived through this particular era would have, would be able to fill in those gaps that the film jumps wildly over. You know, there are certainly time jumps, as I was saying, Yancey just fucks off and you know, he just disappears because he's like, well, there's more land that's going up and we're going to move and we're going to go and do it. And then Sabra's like, no, we're not going to do that. And he's like, yeah, well tough. I'll send for you. And he doesn't and she's left to run this newspaper that he set up. And I found that really kind of interesting and, and fascinating. I'm very glad as well that we do get a section of time with her running the newspaper and seeing what it's like for her to operate this while he's gone. And that made me empathize with her a little bit more, even though she is quite an outwardly terrible person. Um, but I also found it really fascinating about, yes, okay, the opening sequence is Genuinely exciting and genuinely thrilling and then the town that they make uh, is also a really really brilliant looking town Uh, But it wasn't possible be unless RKO didn't purchase 89 acres in Encino where they made the town and so they actually did that and I kind of feel that this film is slightly irresponsible in a lot of ways. Um, it costs $1.5 million. It made a box office uh, of $1.38 million. So it was a loss. And it came out, as we mentioned in the Broadway Melody, you know, the Great Depression kicked in at the end of 1929. And so this came out in the 1930s, in the early, right in the midst of the Great Depression. And no wonder people were like, yeah, I'm not going to go and watch that. You know, what, why would I go and see that? Like, A, I don't have any money. And B, it's also like, I don't know. It'd be like if Jeff Bezos made a documentary about himself just being Jeff Bezos and released it right now in the midst of a pandemic. And everyone's like, why? Why would you, why would you do that? I have no interest in it. Um, So there is a little bit of irresponsibility there. And I do know that there's kind of a false equivalency of, you know, a budget that's spent on a movie uh, being spent elsewhere. It's not like that. It's not like arcade was gonna be like, well we've got one point five million dollars, let's just give it to people. They were always gonna make a movie, but it still doesn't feel right. Um even if it is entertaining and even if I liked it. You know, Great Depression was a long time ago. Who cares about them? And I'm saying that with all the, <laughs> the love like I, I I I you know, that was a very difficult era. I don't mean to be um glib and all this kind of stuff, but I I do find this a really fascinating document of its time and let's touch on that character um of osiah who is played by eugene jackson who um is the first time that we see him uh this poor little black guy is just hanging on a light hanging over the uh Ugh, the, God, the, what an the family dining table uh you know fanning this family this rich family who is like they out actively scoff at Yancey and they're like, he's not going to amount to anything. And, you know, why are you going to rush off to Oklahoma, this non-existent land for, for anything um, with this guy? And then later on, when, as uh, the family, the Cravat family start to move to soon to be Oklahoma, um, there is a really, really disturbing line that uh, I can't remember who has said, who said it to him, but, um, one of the characters offhandedly just goes, lots of watermelons there, Isaiah. And oh, Isaiah's like, Oh Jesus. yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, no, can we not? <laughs> can we not? <laughs> You're making yeah, it really it, hard to like you, Cimarron.
1: <laughs> yeah. It really, you know, when you see things like this, I, you know, two things. One, I'm glad you mentioned like seeing these movies of their time as a kind of time capsule and trying to put yourself there. And sometimes you will hear, Racial jokes or the vision of racial jokes and think like, oh, no one ever said that. It can't possibly be that, that over the top, right? And that obvious. But then you watch something like this and you're like, holy crap. Like you just said that and these are people we're supposed to be on some level rooting for. And it's, you know, and you know, and even like just, you know, the, the hairstyling that's done on this young black kid and everything is like designed to make him look like you know the racial stereotypes that were put in comics of the time and uh so that immediately just kind of turned me off and it just you know and it and it kind of never lets up is the issue it's you know I, i could maybe find a way to ignore or forgive like one or two jokes in the beginning if like they would actually do something with this character uh but they don't like it's just he is a running gag um anytime he shows up and it's it's hard to watch, frankly. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's pretty disturbing. Um, Especially with his death but,
0: scene as well.
1: like Yes, yes.
0: Which takes yes. place during a shootout, and um, which is such a gung-ho bravado sequence where Yancy is the hero once again. And yet poor Isaiah is rushing out to go and save one of the kids and then he gets shot and doesn't die straight away and then starts crawling back into the house and... We watch it all and I was just like, shit, this has gone on for like two minutes here. This kid is just crawling across the ground dying and then he dies and then nobody notices until finally Yancey goes out and picks him up and is all sad about it, which is understandable. But that sequence just like, oh God. Um, It's hideous. I couldn't help but feel like the worst part about that moment was I was like, well, thank God we don't have to see that terrible racist caricature on screen again. Yeah, you're
1: almost grateful that that character has died so we don't have to endure any more of these horrible jokes or these ridiculous references. Um, But it's also, this is, you know, the time capsule aspect is also the reason I am putting myself through not only watching every Oscar winner, but trying to watch all these uh nominees because I know like anyone else I bring in my own stuff to every movie. I bring in my own context, uh whether it be the fact that most of the movies I've watched are from 1950 and forward um or my own kind of liberal politics that come into this. Um, so I want to get uh as much of a context as I can because it'd be one thing to be like, oh uh, I watched Cimarron and that sucked anyway, let's move on from 1931. Um, but if you watch more movies from that era, it, it allows you, I think, to be like, okay, this was, cause I think it's easy to look at like the Oscar winner and be like, oh, well, that's what people liked. Um, that's the only thing. But if you watch like five or six movies, which is still pretty minimal as far as context goes, you still, you get, I think a better context of, you know, what people were watching and what's going on. And it makes it harder to make generalizations about that year right? Because if 1931, if the only movie I saw was Cimarron, I'd be like, well, 1931 clearly was bad. Like, I just, nope, not interested in movies from the early 30s, apparently. Uh, And the same thing with Skippy. Uh, If I had just seen that, I would think the same thing. Uh, But the fact that I got to see uh, The Front Page, which is a movie produced by Howard Hughes, uh, by the way, um, it's a, you know, it's kind of a, you know, it's got some drama to it, but it's more of like kind of a screwball comedy. There's a lot there. There's You know, there's fun characters, there's fun set pieces. It's like, it's a good movie, you know? And it's like, so it's nice to get the context of of the time and not just be like, well, that movie was bad, so clearly it was a bad Oscars that year. There are definitely some some good movies there. And I think this is going to be really interesting. You know, it's one of the things we talked about in in the introductory episode, is seeing how what people watched and what people enjoyed has changed over time. And I think we're already... We're already seeing some changes, and we're only on, like, what is this, the fourth Academy Awards, you know? So imagine what it's going to be like when we finally get to, like, I don't know, like the 1980s and what has really changed, you know? But it was good to see – this is maybe – is this the first Oscar winner we've seen that has – that we could call epic – like in terms of its scope. So this is another, we talked about like, oh, well, the Academy really likes musicals. They really like war movies. Another thing that the Academy really loves is these epic time-spanning big movies. And maybe in one, in this is the one way Cimarron matters, is this is our first instance of a kind of time and globe-spanning film, um, which is surely going to come up again uh, as we move through the Oscar winners.
0: Yeah. It's also the first Western to win and the first one for a very long time until *Dances with Wolves in 1990 uh, to win Best Picture. So that in itself is quite interesting, especially given that how predominant and, um, uh, you know, leading the Western genre was for so long. I mean, to not have... Why do, what do like you think that,
1: that is? is? Why do you oh, think, you know, cause know, westerns right? are very popular, uh, yeah. and it was, it's one of those things that we were talking about, um, you know, what, what wins Oscars, you know, musicals, war pictures, etc. And I, you know, the, one of the things that popped in my mind, like, oh, westerns must've, cause westerns were like such a big deal for decades. Um, and maybe, I don't know, maybe westerns are the, you know, they're the blockbusters of, uh, of of you know especially the 30s 40s 50s 60s where it's like oh that's what regular people watch we don't need to uh we don't need to reward those necessarily that's for the for the common folks uh it's interesting because i think sometimes we look back you know on certain westerns especially you know things like uh high noon uh are really well thought of uh uh what's the Yeah, Shane. I mean, these are great films, uh, but in their time, maybe were not recognized as such. So that's interesting to look back on, too.
0: Yeah, yeah. And certainly for a film like Shane, I would have expected that to have won... A major prize or something, but no. Um, and bring back to the films that came out in the nineteen in nineteen thirty one as well. I mean, we're talking like Frankenstein, Dracula, Public Enemy, um, and as you mentioned, the front page front page as well for people who are interested in seeking it out is a special feature on the His Girl Friday disc on Criterion, um, and I highly recommend that disc. It's a great disc. Um,
1: but yeah, I mean, it is sad that it is sad to me that movies like like Frankenstein has a special place in my heart for. Several reasons. One, it's a great movie. Two, it's one of the first movies that my, my father sat me down and was like, you need to watch this. And I was a kid and I was like, kind of blown away by it. Of course, I had no context of like, you know, what movies could really do at this point, especially older movies. So it is, I mean, I think there is some sadness too in looking back at at what doesn't get recognized by the Academy. And of course that happens every year. There are, there are movies that, you know, will be seen as true greats of the, of the art form that never got a nomination. And, uh, you know, in some cases they are movies that have small budgets and some cases they are movies that are not in English. You know, of course there's a lot of, there's a lot of issues that go on with that. Um, but I mean, a movie like Frankenstein, like it's a, it's a true classic. And I think, I think it's, you know, same thing we talked about Nosferatu. These are movies that hold up and not just on like, it's enjoyable, but this is what the art form can really do. And it's sad to look back and think like, oh, whoever was involved in the voting and the nomination just totally either didn't care or just missed it. And that's kind of sad that some of these great movies.
0: Yeah. And this is part of the reason why I think that this kind of discussion is helpful in the sense that, it exposes what the Academy may be going for. They may be trying to assert themselves as a, not so much a um, prognosticator of quality of cinema, but also a trendsetter and a, you know, if we vote for this film, Green Book, for example, it reflects on us and it makes (laughs) us feel like we're better people because we conquered racism. And I feel that, Cimarron certainly from this time is that kind of film where they're able to kind of hold this up and say you know what everything that Yancey is standing for you know this is the ethos that we want to project even if the people who are voting for a film like this don't actively feel that way Um and but again like one of the other things which I wanted to touch on about this film for me this is why I think it's an important film and it does matter still today is that it's a fascinating document of how little's kind of changed in America as a whole from an outsider's perspective. Um, because in this particular film, like, as I was saying, Yancey is trying to establish a newspaper. He's trying to establish a positive, uh, inclusive town. And yet, and yet, the newspaper that he runs is attacked in a lot of ways. And, certainly is shown in this film, the attack on the press runs as deep as racism. And we are, I again, looking at a film like this through 2020 eyes, I'm like, we haven't changed all that much. The leaders of society haven't really changed all that much. They want to control the press because if they control the press, they control the people. And we get a glimpse of that in this particular film. It's not a, an explicit thing, but we certainly get an understanding of how precious a free press is and how important that is and that's what yancy is fighting for and that's why i think that it really does matter because it 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 reminds people and yes it's not the only document of history of of what was going on at the time but it is certainly a uh, for cinematic reasons uh, it is a major document that people would look at as this is what we want people to remember for this from this era this is what we want people to remember from the early 1930s and if it's saying something about the america then uh it shouldn't ideally say something about the america now but it does and that i find really applicable and important um yeah did you see that as well um or was it just me kind of trying to dig in something where it wasn't there
1: it's definitely there i think it's uh i think it's minorly dealt with uh but i could see how that i mean that certainly has an impact uh given the world we live in now i think it, it'd be it would be interesting to hear, especially in America, if people had that same view like six or seven years ago. Uh, but things have definitely changed pretty drastically with the, you know, the election of Donald Trump and the hashtag fake news uh, and all of that. Um, so I think it it is definitely fresh in our minds and especially during, you know, this kind of time of a pandemic where. Information is at a premium and there's a lot of misinformation going on and control of the press and talking about Fox News and other outlets, things like that. So, yeah, it definitely has an impact and it's especially strong now. But, Andrew, you know what else came out in 1931? What's that? M by Fritz Lang. Oh, yeah. Like that. Of course. God, I mean, and I actually just watched this for the first time, like, maybe three weeks ago. And oh my God, now that is, I mean, that is like, you know, if you could, I think if you could go back in time uh, and change what happened with the Oscars and the Academy could, I think that maybe is one of the movies they wish they could be like Academy Award winner M because yeah. that would be something that like you could look back on it like, and that honestly people, if you have not seen M, um, I know it's an old movie. I know it's like a different style, but it is impressive. Like, it is a movie that truly, truly holds up as far as suspense goes, as far as filming goes. Like, wow, I was really impressed by that. So that is the one I think I would, you know, I would certainly pick that even over something like Frankenstein, which my heart tells me to go with. But there's a lot of great stuff. I think, you know, as far as Cimarron goes, I think there are memorable moments. I think there are things there you can hold on to uh, that make it matter a little bit. Um, but I think once you take... The full context of the movie to me at least it starts to matter less and less because all the important things get diluted with everything else going on that's kind of a mess for me
0: sure i can understand that um and i think that we've we've certainly touched on a lot of the the themes and the meanings of it and i can i respect you know the the notion that it's not a great film i get that i can see that it is it has aged not wonderfully um but i was still you know i still <laughs> yeah i'm I'm trying to um soften the blows here but i i i still enjoyed it quite a bit and i think what really sunk in for me was that yeah i thought the writing was really good i am glad that it didn't win, win oscar for its writing if mostly because it has one hell of a and a, a closing line the ending line for this particular film actually made me feel really sad and and quite, uh, almost teary. Um, and it's a line which I, you know, is delivered so wonderfully as Yancey is dying. And, um, Mm -hmm. Richard Dick says it perfectly. And he says, hide me, hide me in your love to his wife, Sabra, who again, he hasn't seen for fucking years because he's left again. Um, because it's, it seems to be the thing that Yancey does. It's like, see ya, I'm out of here. And she's once again left to run a newspaper and become a governor and all this kind of stuff. But, um, we haven't even touched on, as well, and we won't go into it because we've, you know, th- this is already a jam-packed discussion as it is, but we haven't even touched <laughs> on the fact that the son of the whole entire piece, Cimarron, Sim, who is, I assume, what the film is named after, um, grows up and, and gets married to uh, their Native American person that they employ to, as a, assume, like an 11-year-old, 12-year-old, um, to clean the house, and then when they're adults, uh, those two get married. And... Um, you know, the sister is like, no, 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 we're not, you know, I'm not having that. I'm I'm going to grow old and get married to a, a, a wealthy white man. And sure enough, she does. Mr. Hugh Hefner or a Mr. Yeah. Um, She becomes a Miss, Mrs. Louis Hefner and which I was like, oh, it's very much like <laughs> you know, Hugh Hefner was and all this kind of stuff. And I, I found that really interesting too. But that, that closing line was the thing that kind of sealed it for me. That I was like, yeah, I thought this was a really good film. I really enjoyed it. Um, All right, so, so, so here's what I'll
1: <laughs> here's what I'll say. This is the nicest thing I will say about Cimarron. <laughs> of course, it will be couched in cynicism because that is the person that you've chosen to be on this show. So sorry <laughs> about that. Great beginning, good ending, but damn, it's a shame about the middle. That's that's what I'll say about Cimarron.
0: Lovely okay and it doesn't matter to you at all no worries that's fine nope yep. nope just strike it from
1: film history just burn the prince that's definitely what i'm saying
0: <laughs> may wesley ruggles roll in his grave poor man poor man um so that's him yeah i think that'll do us for that uh there was yeah i liked it you didn't um uh it's once again it's a film that's kind of hard to find so you know if this discussion is engaged you at, at all um and if you are watching these along with us fantastic but if not um you know dave would strongly suggest not hunting this down i would suggest um if it pops up in your 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 view um don't skip it um Give it a watch.
1: It's worth it. It's worth it. I love, I love that your attitude is like, if you accidentally wander into somewhere (laughs) showing it, don't run away. It's okay. (laughs) (laughs) If it falls in your vision somehow, I love it.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's high praise for Cimarron. Um, And now I'm a Rotten Tomatoes approved critic. I'm going to stick that on there as a positive (laughs) and say, if it falls in your vision, don't walk away. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Love it
0: great all right so the next episode uh we will be discussing grand hotel which won a grand total of one oscar it was nominated for one oscar as well and that was best picture um so join us in august for that uh we'd love to have you along um dave where can people find you on the internet?
1: Uh, if you want to find me, I'm all over Twitter, of course. Um, I would love if you followed my other podcast. Um, it's called A Podcast Directed By, where me and my co-host, Mike Denniston, uh, take a look at individual directors. We pick one each month. Um, I think around the time this is coming out, we will have finished Ida Lupino and moved on through Michael Bay. So we do a little bit of everything over there on that show. Um, and you can follow that uh, on Twitter at By Pod.
0: Yeah, that Adelapina discussion's been good. Um, Just listen to the second one you guys did. It was really entertaining. Um, And you can follow us as well, Awards Don't Pod, on uh, Twitter and Awards Don't Matter Podcast on Facebook. And if you wish to send us an email, then it's AwardsDon'tMatterPod at gmail.com. And you can follow me at TheCurbAU on both Twitter and Facebook. And by nightfall, by nightfall there wasn't an anchor. Think of it, there was not an anchor left out of that two minutes. The only spot I wanted was the ground we stood on, and, well, the girl got that quarter-section. Jancy Cravat! You let that Hussy in black tights have your claim after having been gone a whole month away from your wife and child? Now, Mama. Don't you Mama me. Isaiah, there. Gone with your fanning.
1: Yes, Miss Well? The
0: land was hers by right of claim. I don't believe a word of it. Why did you let her keep your land? If a man, I could've shot him. You can't shoot a woman. Why not? Oh, for me.